0: Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Jude, Contend for the Faith. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton.
1: Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams... Defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, enter our hearts, and so fill us with your love, that forsaking all evil desires, we may embrace you, our only good. Show unto us, for your mercy's sake, O Lord our God, what you are unto us. say unto our souls, I am your salvation. So speak that we may hear. Our hearts are before you. Open our ears. Let us hasten after your voice and take hold of you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the prior passage, Jude provides a variety of examples of sinful behavior that is due God's judgment. You may recall from last week, those are unbelief, rebellion, and sexual perversion. But his purpose in providing these examples is practical. Practical application in the church How do you identify deceivers who have crept into the church unnoticed? Jude provides three characteristics for us to look for. Defilement, rejection, and dishonor. Do those who claim spiritual insight, whether by dreams or otherwise... Defile the flesh, meaning do they accept, advocate, and engage in sexual immorality? Or, do those who claim spiritual insight reject authority, meaning Christ's authority over their life and God's ordained authority within the church? Do those who claim spiritual insight, quote, blaspheme the glorious ones, Likely meaning, do they disregard or do they discredit the supernatural? If so, as we've studied up until this point, if so, beware. But what if, what if they're already in the church? What if they fit in so well you really can't tell? What if they profess Christ? What if they are biblically knowledgeable and theologically astute? What if they have already reached out to you specifically and seek to win you over to their way? What if you can't imagine that there would be anyone in the church who would seek to deceive you? Well, for starters, Jude says, check their motives. Check their motives and your own. Describing the deceiver's motivation, Jude gives three Old Testament examples. And they're described in this way. You can look at the text with me, starting in verse 9. The way of Cain is the first one. Balaam's error is the second one. And Korah's rebellion is the third And these are important, and I want us to look at all three of them, beginning with the example of Cain, which should be a familiar one to all of us. He committed the first sin outside of Eden. You'll recall that that first sin was murder. But while we often fixate on the act of his sin, it was his motivation that God first addressed. Do you remember what God said to Cain? He said, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. But it's really hard to subdue what you obsess over. And that's what happened to Cain. He became obsessive. He couldn't get it out of his mind. He couldn't let it go. I'll never forget it, Cain will say, My worship was not acceptable before God, and I am obsessed with it. And so, you may recall that Cain and Abel, they first brought their sacrifice to God. Cain offered the fruit of the ground, but Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. And you'll also recall that God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice and not with Cain's. Now, fascinatingly enough, a lot of people jump to conclusions on this passage, but technically, the Bible does not tell us why God accepted Abel's offering over Cain's. Now, there are a number of theories. Perhaps it was because Abel's offering was superior in quality. Perhaps it was Abel's heart. He was worshiping the Lord from the heart. Or perhaps it was, my favorite, the blood of the sacrifice that he offered of that firstborn from his flock. Or, which is probably the case, it was all three. Regardless, God was pleased with Abel's offering and Abel's offering only. But what is often missed in this text is that Cain could have learned from God's revelation. He could have learned from God's revelation. He could have changed. He could have worshipped God rightly. He could have heeded God's warning. He could have obeyed, but Cain did not. God's revelation, instead, it made him angry and angrier and angrier to the point at which he became vengeful. And he took it out on Abel, murdering his brother and breaking God's law, and so revealing the thoughts and intentions of his heart. Now, referencing Cain, in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews explains that without faith, Without faith, it is impossible to please God and draw near to Him. You see, Cain, who was without faith, refused to listen to the Word of God. He refused to trust God and take Him at His Word. Choosing anger and sinful indulgence over obedience, Cain sinned. Now, historically, Cain has been interpreted as the Archetypical sinner, paving a pattern of sin for all who would follow in his way. But Cain's not the only example that Jude gives us. The second example that he gives is, as he calls it, Balaam's error. Who is that referring to? You may recall that Balaam was a wicked prophet who was hired by the king of Moab to curse, to pronounce a curse as a prophet upon Israel. You may also recall that he failed. Every time that he meant to curse, he could not. God kept him providentially from cursing Israel. But Scripture also tells us that Balaam was not unsuccessful. Realizing that he could not curse Israel, he did think there's another way of entrapment. What I will do is I will entice the men of Israel By Moabite women. And the Moabite women then will lead Israel into sexual immorality and from sexual immorality into idolatry. And, in fact, Balaam was successful. You may also recall that Balaam collected his cash and God judged Israel and in His judgment, 24,000 were killed. The third example that Jude gives is Korah's rebellion. Now, this may not be as familiar as others, but this refers to the Israelite who, very frustrated with leadership, very frustrated with Moses and with Aaron, he began to network. And he began to, within the tribes, to pull together 250, which seems relatively small considering the size of Israel. But nevertheless, he was influential. A minority. A brigade to come against and stand against Moses and Aaron. Korah stirred up dissension against the leaders of Israel. And so Moses, trusting the Lord, turned Korah over and his brigade that followed him pronouncing judgment from God. And do you remember what happened when Moses turned over Korah and his followers to the Lord? Scripture says, The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed all 250 of Korah's followers. Now in Jude's three examples, he is specifically revealing characteristics of deceivers in the church. But he is also teaching us to examine motives. Look to the motives of those who are seeking to deceive within the church. Like Cain, deceivers in the church may hear the word of God and act as if they want to please them, but their hearts are far from Him. Like Cain, deceivers in the church are motivated not by God's pleasure, but by their own pleasure. They grow angry, even vengeful, when what they want is disregarded. Their lust for acknowledgement is superior. And in their lust for acknowledgement, they would kill, if only they could. Like Balaam, they may be thwarted in their deception, but they won't give up. But tenaciously pursue ways to entice the weak, carefully seeking out those who are vulnerable. Those who are most gullible in the church, those who are most easily swayed by virtue of their emotions, by virtue of their lusts, appealing to their base desires, they facilitate insidious indulgence leading to sinful entrapment, creating an illusion of spiritual maturity. Instead, they care nothing for the condition of their own souls or the souls of those who follow them. In the end, well, as it was with Balaam, it's all about them. Like Korah, they pit themselves against the church's elders and encourage a root of distrust in those who are gullible enough to follow them. In their mind, they know what's best. And leadership, they're wrong. They're the enemy. Growing more and more calloused, they seek to find disgruntled others in the church. And then they fan the flame, building a contingency of dissension to undermine God-ordained authority and to be validated in their opposition. The Apostle Paul encouraged the church in Thessalonica, quote, "...to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord." and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But deceivers in the church disrespect authority in the church, and they scoff at the idea of highly esteeming the elders in love. And Jude says, Woe. Woe to them. Woe to them indeed. Now, remembering the deceivers creep into the church unnoticed. We should not expect them to identify themselves. And so, their tactic is not declaration. It's not to come in and say, here I am, I'm a deceiver. Now you know. But rather, what they do is they connive. Jude says they are hidden reefs. In fact, Jude is going to move into a series of metaphors in this portion of... Of this short passage. And he starts with this. They're hidden reefs at your love feasts. And they feast with you without fear. What's he saying there? In other words, like a ship on smooth seas, the church may sail along without concern until unexpectedly a reef is struck And in striking that reef, the church is damaged and immobilized. Well, such deceivers are hidden just below the surface because they know how to mix and mingle at fellowship lunches. They have no fear because what's love feast? I'm thinking love feast is the equivalent of our fellowship lunch, right? Work with me here, folks. They have no fear because they know what to say. They know how to behave, not to call attention to themselves, to fit in and so gain a gullible following. But unlike a true shepherd of the church, a true shepherd, and I think of the elders of this church, and I think about when we went through, for example, the the COVID virus and all the craziness that came with that. and, And I think of these men who... On their knees poured their hearts out to God and sought the wisdom of God and came into session meetings without their own agenda but seeking what is best for Christ's church. And I have watched these godly men within this church pour their hearts out for the sake of this church. And I think about what good shepherds they are and Jude says, deceivers aren't like that. The only person they're concerned about shepherding is themselves. The only thing that they want to shepherd is their goals, their lusts, their pride, their purpose, not the churches. And so they seek to feed their fleshly appetite. I told you this was a heavy passage. But all of this does not mean that we are without discernment. And I would say even the most gullible among us may learn discernment. Because Proverbs teaches us this, even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. And Jude here employing multiple metaphors, think about it, clouds and then trees and then waves and stars, Jude describes how deceivers in the church make themselves known. You should see it, I should see it. They are clouds that produce no rain, contributing nothing of value but vanity, yet carrying away the deceived like the wind. They are clouds that produce no rain. They are trees. And think about this, in Psalm 1, I think about Psalm 1 and I think about the image of the righteous and godly man and the image of a tree. And it's a beautiful uh, metaphor in which it says, the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. But the deceivers in the church are the opposite of that. They grow nothing but animosity for Christ's church. They create and produce nothing but strife. Because they have no root in Christ having no life in Him, no matter what they say, no matter what they tell you, no matter the jargon they have memorized, they're dead. They're wild waves casting up the foam of their own shame, uncontrolled and unrestrained by the Word of God and without a sense of honor, even a decent sense of propriety of how to behave in the church. They are wandering stars, leading all who would follow their light wayward. But Jude says their destiny is far, far darker. And it is a destiny reserved, especially for them. Well, such deceivers do not carefully consider what they are doing. And and Jude adds to this. Use the example of, of, of an animal, of instincts or impulses. Jude says, like unreasoning animals, driven by their desires, they're motivated by their feelings. You cannot reason with them, because they are ruled by their emotions, submitting not to the Lord nor authority, but in an animal-like obeisance to their flesh. Therefore, Jude says, they blaspheme, or that word could also be translated slander, They slander a gospel they really don't believe. They will not submit to a Lord Jesus they don't really know. Woe to them, Jude says. Oh, woe to them. And so, in this cheery sermon on Sunday morning in January, it may lead you to wonder, who can contend with such beasts? I mean, if you think about it, I feel inadequate. And I'm the pastor. And I'm thinking, wow, this is hard language. I mean, these have have crept in unnoticed. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God to deny my Lord Jesus Christ. And, And you might think with me, you might think, you know, if only I were supernaturally equipped. If I were like, say, an archangel, if I were an archangel, well then, well then, I would be able to contend with such demonic deception. Instead, I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm just a mere mortal. I am a sinner through and through, saved only by God's grace through faith in my Lord Jesus Christ. That's me. I'm not an archangel. And you're not either. And yet Jude adds this. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, when an archangel of God contends with the devil, he does not do it by his own power or his own authority. He does it upon the Lord's power. Upon the Lord's authority in the name of the Lord. Now this section, this verse within the passage today, is foreign to many. It's foreign to many because Jude is actually quoting from an extra-biblical text. He's quoting from an ancient Jewish text called the Assumption of Moses, in which he describes a supernatural confrontation between the archangel and the devil. This is the Word of God. God is speaking through his word, just as Paul on Mars Hill drew from a pagan poet. So here Jude is drawing from another text to teach us something about what happened that we've not heard of before. Now you may recall that in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we read of Moses' death in the land of Moab and his subsequent burial by God, concluding, quote, no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And so apparently this confrontation between the archangel Michael and devil and the devil it happens at this time the ancient story elaborates in saying that the devil contended for the body of Moses because Moses should not be buried honorably because he was a murderer and so the devil said he doesn't deserve an honorable burial but Michael didn't say You want to bet? You think you're so scary, Mr. Devil, right? You're just in fallen angel. He says, None of that, right? He says, The Lord rebuke you. And Satan fled. The Lord rebuke you. And so Michael prevailed. There are several points that we may observe here in conclusion. First, Unlike the fallen angels, who you may recall in verse 6 of Jude, did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, Michael knows this. Michael knows his position, and he knows his place. He's not God, and he knows it. Though the archangel of the Lord had authority, and had great power, he does not assert that here Second, though the devil is a powerful fallen angel, and indeed he is, he is still a created being. He's not the Lord of glory. And so, he is rebuked by the name of the Lord. Let us remember this. And this is a good thing to remember on a heavy passage like this. Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord, including the knee and the tongue of the devil. (laughs) Third, Michael calls upon the Lord to carry out perfect judgment. Michael calls upon the Lord to carry out perfect judgment. He's not simply quoting a phrase. It's not the power of the phrase in which he said, but what it means. The Lord rebuke you. Meaning the Lord will do this. Lord, you do this. Unlike the arrogant deceiver, the devil, or unlike his deceivers who creep into the church, Michael knows and trusts our righteous Lord. And I promise He always knows best. Jude provides this example. He provides it not for trivia, although I find it remarkably fascinating, right? And you probably do too. But that's not the point. The point is the application of it. Whether deceivers have crept into the church or whether they have not, we learn from this. Must we contend with deception in the church? Yep. But we do not do so by our power. We do not do so by our authority. Indeed, we do so by the Lord's authority. We rebuke by the name of the Lord according to His word, trusting for His righteous judgment. For He is the King. The King who subdues us unto Himself. The King who rules and defends over us. The King who restrains and conquers his and our enemies. As Moses said to the children of Israel in one of my favorite passages in Exodus, he says to the children of Israel, as Pharaoh and his army are in hot pursuit, and they are a fearful people of what will happen when Pharaoh and the army get there, Moses said this, fear not, stand firm, And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. In conclusion, let me encourage you in this. One of the things that Jude, like a broken record, repeats and is going to continue to repeat, I might add, is that part of our contending with deception in the church is to make sure we're not the gullible one, to make sure that we're not the one being deceived. Jude goes at great lengths, as you have seen just in these few short sermons, to help us identify deceivers. Not so we may go and personally rebuke them, but so we don't fall prey to deception. And I find this not only applicable within the church, but also just in life in general. We need to ensure that we're not the ones being deceived. We're not the ones being duped. We're the ones practicing discernment. Because you see, a deceiver will not, Remain in a church without followers. But rather will flee somewhere else, so where they may gain a following. For the way of Cain, Balaam's error, Korah's rebellion, lead to sin and death. But the way of Christ is to righteousness and life. And this is true for us all. So let us look to our Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again that we might live, that we might abide in Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life and keeps us from deception when we look to Him and listen to His word. For we are His church and it is in his name that we contend let's pray our god in heaven we thank you that all of your word is inspired that your holy spirit carried along men to deliver us to deliver to us the word of god and as we have looked at your word today and you remind us that we are to be a people of wisdom and discernment. We pray that you would keep us from deception. May we see your truth clearly and may we follow you as the way, the truth, and the life. Oh God, have mercy upon your church, both this local church, but so also the Christian church throughout this land. Have mercy upon your church, I pray. Keep us from deception. Bless us, that we may flourish, so enjoying the peace that comes from only you, that we might be a bastion of light, that we may advance your gospel throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.